I'm Susan Branscombe, and this is Leading She. And I'll share one thing she said to me once, you know, I said, what am I going to do in this in this meeting? You know, I was feeling really intimidated. And she said, you're just going to grow a big pear and drag him across the floor. (laughs) (laughs) You know, and and she just she just says, you walk in there and you just, you know, take control of the situation, basically. Dr. Holly Peterson is Director of Medical Breast Services at the Cleveland Clinic, where she's worked for 24 years. Having enjoyed a long and impressive career, Holly believes that women must help other women succeed, and she's a big mentor to young women. After a situation with her oldest child, which served as a wake-up call, she elected to begin working part-time and did so for seven years of her career. As an expert in breast health, she sees the confusion in the market around the timing of mammograms and genetic predisposition for breast cancer. She believes fear of a bad diagnosis can be a factor standing in the way of getting mammograms and urges women to schedule them annually, as well as regularly perform self-exams. Enjoy listening to this successful medical professional, Dr. Holly Peterson. Today I have with me Dr. Holly Peterson, the Director of Medical Breast Services at the Cleveland Clinic, who is active in clinical research. Welcome, Holly. Thank you so much, and thank you for having me. I appreciate it. It's great to have you here, and I'm anxious to talk to you this morning. Let's go over a little bit of your background. Uh, You graduated from the University of California at Santa Barbara, a degree in biochemistry with the distinction of Phi Beta Kappa. You have a medical degree uh, from the University of California, San Francisco, and you worked as a... uh, physician internist at the beginning of your career. Uh, You've been with the Cleveland Clinic for 24 years. Now uh, you work in the subspecialty, as you call it, of breast health and breast cancer. Um, I think I have most of that right. Is that correct? You sure do. Okay. Yeah, I do my research. (laughs) Many people that I talk to on this podcast are business people, and they have often long bios, biographies, Uh, yet with CVs, which uh, is known as curriculum vitae, uh, CVs are very comprehensive. So your CV happens to be 17 pages long, which is pretty incredible. Uh, Congratulations. Well, thank you. With all you've accomplished. And it outlines not only your education and experience, but of course, articles you've published, many, many of them many awards, board service, committees, courses you've taught, presentations, panels you've served on, people you've trained and mentor, and it's really pretty incredible. Um, Talk a little about your career, uh, kind of in summary, and maybe give some highlights, and why did you go into the uh, subspecialty of breast health? Well, thank you for that very, very kind introduction. Uh, I'll never recover from leaving UC Santa Barbara, for the record. <laughs> but uh, UC San Francisco was a was a wonderful place to train. I did both medical school and internal medicine residency there and became a general internist, then focusing on women's health. And in 1997, was approached uh, by Dr. Joseph Crow, who had created the Breast Center at Cleveland Clinic, to develop a program really aimed at uh, diagnostics and following survivors long term. But this was in 1997. 
1994 and 1995, BRCA1 and BRCA2 were discovered. So my practice really grew into a high-risk and genetics-based practice. And what I largely focus on, both in terms of clinical care and research, uh, is is genetics, germline genetics, Mm -hmm. that is, genetics that are inherited from one generation to the next. Mm -hmm. And I I have developed along the way, along these years, a a subspecialty uh, training program where I uh, train both internal and external people who work in the field. Uh, I currently have two other physicians and about six advanced practice practitioners, both PAs and nurse practitioners that work in the Cleveland Clinic Breast Center. And together we see over half of the 19,000 outpatient visits per year that are seen at the clinic and over half of the new patient visits. I'm also training right now uh, a physician in Abu Dhabi uh, Mm. via Zoom, Mm -hmm. Skype, what Teams, whatever, whatever we're all on anymore, and two more nurse practitioners. Um, So my training has, I really enjoy education. I love patient care. I love research. Uh, In terms of genetics, along the way, I did a six-month a fellowship with Dr. Karis Eng at the Cleveland Clinic, who, who runs genetics and genomics worldwide, both at the clinic and, and helps, you know, in our country uh, lead forth in the directions that we take and did a City of Hope course as well in, in genetics. So uh, it's, it's been a very fulfilling mm. career and, and I thoroughly enjoy every part of it. Yeah, wow. For our listeners, BRCA1 and 2, and I know this just because I have read about it, heard about it, are these are genetic uh, indicators uh, of, of predisposition to breast cancer. Isn't that right? Sure. Fortunately, uh, Angelina Jolie so bravely came forth with her story where uh, her mother had ovarian cancer and she was found to have what we call a BRCA1 mutation, which is a change in the DNA that predisposes to cancer. And she decided to have risk-reducing surgeries, both ovarian and breast, and was public about it. And so while these genes were discovered in the 90s, it really wasn't until 2013 when she told her story that it reached public awareness. There are now maybe 12 genes that are, uh, that are responsible for many uh, of the breast cancers that we see that are heritable. And then there is a, an additional sector of familial clustering that's unexplained by these highly penetrant and moderately penetrant genes, these genes that are very high risk shall we say. Mm -hmm. But it's important to remember that about 75% uh, of patients who get breast cancer have no identifiable family history or risk factors. And so we all need to be vigilant. 
Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, what I'm wondering is, would you recommend to a young woman that is uh, 25, 35 to have genetic testing done? Is that advisable? So I think that all women by the age of 30, and certainly 25 is a good starting point, should have a risk assessment should have a you know a, a careful family history elucidated to see whether their family should be evaluated for genetic testing. We are moving toward testing all cancer patients and ultimately I believe that we will likely move toward testing all women. Uh, Mary Claire King, who is credited with the discovery of the BRCA1 gene, said back in 2014, you know, that she strongly believed in testing all women. Um, but, you know, it's a slippery slope in terms of what, what people want to know. You know, we have, the, we have the capability of sequencing somebody's entire genome and letting them know what they're predisposed to, not only in, in breast cancer or cancer, but in terms of uh, hereditary cardiovascular risk, right. neurologic risk. You know, there mm -hmm. are things that perhaps people may not want to know uh, now or later. Yeah, I'm wondering, you know, there's the genetic predisposition and then there's lifestyle. You know, do, do you drink too much, which can contribute to health, uh, breast health risk? Uh, are you overweight? I mean, there are lifestyle choices that you make that you can actually fight this predisposition, right? And not get breast cancer. You're not necessarily going to get it with these uh, genetic. Right. There are modifiers, you know, certainly the, the three most well-established modifiers of, of breast cancer risk are exactly what you said, remaining thin, and there's no particular prescribed diet, but the Mediterranean diet probably is the healthiest, but whatever it, whatever suits you to maintain your ideal body weight, reduces your risk. Limiting alcohol consumption to a drink a day or less for women mm -hmm. and um, limiting the uh, duration of combined hormone replacement therapy in the postmenopausal setting. Mm -hmm. But uh, these genes really um, kind of trump a lot of a lot of that unfortunately. there's some modification within uh, a, a genetic carriers, uh, control, but a lot of it is a lot of it is not within their control. Mm -hmm. There are also gene gene interactions. Uh, there are these little genes called SNPs that uh, there are over 300 associated with breast cancer now. And you, again, you inherit one from your mom and one from your dad. And so your combination of SNPs might be totally different from your sister's combination of SNPs. And those SNPs, probably more so even than, uh, than lifestyle, can influence whether you are likely to get cancer or not. And that can make a difference in someone's approach to screening, mm -hmm. approach to uh, taking medication, and sometimes uh, even in, in their approaches to, to say, risk-reducing surgeries. Mm -hmm. Okay. 
Good, good stuff. Um, so tell me where we are with breast cancer today. It just we've come so far in the last, you know, five years, ten years, twenty-five, thirty years. Uh, we've made such great strides, really knowing more about this disease. And uh, what are the biggest things right now that most of my listeners are women? Uh, what are the biggest things that women can do? To prevent breast cancer, I know self exams yeah. is big. Mammograms are big. Tell me, tell us about that. Well, you know, it used to be so easy. You know, awareness meant get your mammogram and do your self exam. And now there's complete confusion around your mammogram: when to start, when to stop, how often to do it, what kind you should have, whether mm -hmm. you should have additional testing. Right. It's a total cluster right now. Right. And um, the other part of it is, um, you know, what, what should you do? What do we know? We're being told not to do self-exam. I think that's absurd. Many, many women come in with their own breast lump and a woman should be familiar with her tissue and report any changes. Right. But when it comes to this whole mammogram business, um, there has been no new data suggesting that women in their 40s do not benefit the same way as women in their 50s. Uh, the, the reduction in mortality from screening mammograms is 20 to 40% across the board, and that has not changed. Um, what has changed is the, uh, the attitudes towards a woman's tolerance for being called back for second look mammograms. It's actually fascinating because in a woman's 40s, she may be called back more, but there's actually no increase in biopsies. Mm. And so, and the rate of breast cancer is like one in 42 in a woman's 50s and one in 58 in a woman's 40s. Hmm. It's essentially no different. And one out of every six years of life lost is due to uh, women who develop breast cancer in their 40s. Mm. So, you know, you obviously touched on a, on a topic that, that is, uh, means a lot to me mm -hmm. in terms of holding down the fight for starting mammograms at the age of 40 and continuing every year until you're, uh, until you're lifespan is really estimated to be five years or less. Now, federally, they're making it known so that a woman, it's, it's obligatory that a woman be notified about her breast density. Mm -hmm. There are four categories of breast density. Women who have fatty replaced breasts, not only uh, are they at lower risk, but a small child could read their mammogram. Then they're scattered, heterogeneously dense, and extremely dense. And women in those latter two categories, heterogeneously dense or extremely dense, are termed dense breasts. And the ones who are extremely dense, which make up only 10% of the population, are actually at much higher risk for breast cancer mm -hmm. than women with fatty replaced 
But all women with dense tissue need to understand that they have additional options to improve their screening. Um, and digital breast tomosynthesis or the three-dimensional mammogram is useful for all women except for the fatty replace. They don't really add a lot because they're so easy to read. Yeah. But everyone else should strive to get three-dimensional tomosynthesis. Mm -hmm. But when you look at the supplemental yield associated with different technologies that can look at dense tissue, if you screen a thousand women with digital mammograms, you're going to pick up about four breast cancers per thousand women screened. The tomosynthesis adds another one and a half per thousand women screened. So not a lot. Um, whole breast ultrasound adds four, but there's a lot of false positives and it's not really recommended by many societies. But what's coming on the block is something called abbreviated MRI, which is more available to women uh, the full sequence MRI that we perform in the hospital typically is extremely expensive and reserved for high, high risk patients. But there's an abbreviated MRI that is very sensitive and adds 25 cases per thousand women screen. Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm fascinated by all of this. Uh, and I've, I've had my share of mammograms and so forth. Um, I think one of the things I learned in my research about you, and I've had this experience where the fear of what they might find makes me not want to go, okay? And I do my mammograms every year. I face the fear. I go in there, and I'm like, what if they find something, you know? And I have been called back, and I had no problems. But I tell you, that callback call is absolutely terrifying, and I'd, sure and I'd rather not have the call. I'd rather not face any of that. And if I keep my head in the sand, what I don't know will not hurt me, right? But it could hurt right. me. So, the, the, yeah, the fear, um, if you could, you know, summarize that issue for women and what, what you would say. Well, the three-dimensional mammogram has 15% fewer callbacks. I'll start there. Okay. And, um, you know, the older we get, the more frightening it becomes, you know, the average age of breast cancer is 62 and mm. it is, you know, our, our mortality, uh, is in front of us as we move forward. And it, it is scary, but mm -hmm. the testing is so good and it's all about early detection. Yep. You know, we just, it, it's hard, particularly for women who have family history and have watched loved ones go through tough things things. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's even harder. But, you know, we have to either look at it as an opportunity or something that's frightening. And yes. so it's, you know, our tests are so good nowadays that, you know, I, I think we've got to, we've all just got to do it. Just got to do it. It's just like we talk about in the podcast, uh, face your fear, jump, uh, take a risk. I mean, don't, don't live in denial or avoidance on this. It's just, it's just way too important to check it out. Yeah. Dr. Lisa Larkin, uh, OBGYN here in Cincinnati, uh, recommended you as a guest on Leading She, so I'm grateful to her. And uh, she began Ms. Medicine. She's a huge advocate for women's health, as you are, uh, passionate about it. And 
in my podcast with her, she talks about the medical community and how women's health issues in the medical community, um, and there's a lot of gender bias around uh, how women are treated. Um, and I have to believe that you are passionate about that uh, that bias um, and see yeah. it. And and passionate about Lisa. Lisa's yeah. fabulous. She is. You know, she's she's brought experts throughout the country together in in forums to help educate others. Um, she, you know, she's she's just really a a, a pioneer and an enormous advocate in the space. Um, you know, it's been shown that women aren't taken seriously with their heart complaints in the ER, that they may not be taken seriously, a young woman with, with a breast lump by her OBGYN. I think that there's a lot of education that needs to take place around uh, how women may present differently. Um, and, uh, you know, she and I are certainly doing all we can to help educate both uh, patients and providers about women's health. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. Let's dive into some of the career things we talked about. Yeah. Um, I noticed on your CV that you have trained and mentored women in your field, uh, and that's important to you to support young women in their fields and their careers. Talk about that. Well, you know, I have been so uh, supported by the Cleveland Clinic in the choices that I've made. And uh, I have an academic position in the medical school. I do national research, national and international speaking. But, it, you know, it wasn't always that way. And there's a time and a place for different parts of your life. And when my children were little, I actually was allowed to take seven years off to be with mm -hmm. them. Um, mm -hmm. And it didn't affect my current trajectory. Uh, and I think that that's something I, I'd like young women to really be aware of that, um, that you, you can do, you can do it all, maybe just not all at the same time. Mm -hmm. Yes, <laughs> And I, I, I do help uh, some young women staff um, members. Uh, I do some coaching and mentoring and in addition to the training that I do and, you know, allow them to, to explore different areas that they may be interested in, you know, support them in introducing them to other people that might be influential to them. I think that um, women need to support women. Women yes. need to be advocates for other women and open doors that they know that they can open for particularly those that are, that are going after us, you know, and um, I think that those relationships, I just had dinner last night with a, young woman who has done research intermittently with me since high school. And she's now about to start her, her first radiology job. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, you lead by example, but you also are very clear about, uh, about insisting that these women have a place at the table, have a voice and giving them uh, permission to do so. Yeah, definitely. I've I've had a passion for a long time of giving back to young women, and it takes time, you know, and we don't have a lot of time as busy executives, busy, you know, people in the medical profession, but 
I make the time, uh, even when it's not convenient. You know, it sounds like you do the same thing. We have to. We have to give back. Well, we're in menopause. We don't sleep. <laughs> right? Yeah, I was going to talk to you about that after the podcast. <laughs> yeah, be- between giving back and ordering things <laughs> off my Facebook ads that I don't right. remember ordering. Right, at 2 o'clock in the morning, you know. Right, Yeah, right. yeah. You have, uh, you have done something that I have done in my career, um, and that is to establish yourself as an expert in your field. When I first got into commercial mortgage banking, I, I asked myself, how do I let people know I know what I'm doing? You know, you can do that in the regular deal making of my business, but um, I decided to write. I've always been a writer, and I thought, I'm just going to pub- you know, publish some articles. These, these newspapers go begging for articles, so I'm going to write, and I started that in my 30s. And I slowly became somebody uh, uh, that was regarded as an expert. And you've talked about this, and you believe that women, unlike men, uh, sometimes need to distinguish ourselves, to establish ourselves as experts in some way. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I actually had uh, a, a female surgical oncologist that we had invited to the clinic. She she had she sat down with me and was, you know, uh, sharing some of her experiences and actually took a video of me writing on a piece of paper as a reminder that you should really spend 15 minutes a day putting pen to paper, you know, and now if certainly nobody uses a pen anymore, but the uh, analogy of, of really, really writing is a huge way to distinguish yourself. Mm -hmm. I think that reading avidly, and there are so many uh, unique, you know, ways to, you know, be notified of things that are of interest to you. All of those word search things from search engines where you're notified. I actually receive weekly uh, publications on my email of people who I follow on PubMed, you know. So I would say primarily read and listen and write, you know, those are probably the three things I think that are the most important in terms of distinguishing yourself. Of course, later, you know, you're asked to write, you're asked to speak, you know, you're asked to do things, but early on, read as much as you can, listen to the people that that are the top in the field. And you're right, you know, venture out, find find a venue to try to write things mm-hmm. that, you know, initially um, maybe, maybe, you know, um, sort of general and then more specific as time goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, definitely recommend that for young women to, uh, and men don't have to do it. We talked about that always. It's just assumed that he knows what he's doing, you know. Uh, and we, we sort of have to prove ourselves a little bit uh, to establish ourselves as, as experts. Yeah, that's probably true. You mm-hmm. probably have to have to be better, but we are better. We are. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> um, you talked about something that I'd like to dive into a little bit more here with you. With this, You have a good story um, that when I was in, uh, when I, in the 80s and 90s, when I, had, uh, when I was pregnant, had young children, 
I was actually, I worked full-time. I continued to work full-time. If I had to do it over again, I think I would take a break and do some part-time work and and, uh, get off the track for a while or just have a slower pace and be more with my children if I had to do it over. Um, I I just felt that though I was... You know, we have very long careers. Mine's 42 years. Yours is a long mm-hmm. career. I mean, seven years, five years to kind of take time out, that's not a lot of time. Back then, in the 80s and 90s, it was they had something called the mommy track, which I never really understood what that was. I just knew that if I worked part-time that I would be out of the game, you know, and, and I couldn't really get back into the game at any point. And you had a story I thought was really cute about your oldest child and something... When you realized, yeah. you realized you needed to go part-time. I was fully aware of that mommy track and struggled with that. You know, would I be sidelined? Would I be, mm-hmm. uh, would I not have any opportunity to uh, achieve uh, leadership positions or, or move forward? And in fact, kind of decided that that was okay to to uh, to forego a career satisfaction because I I too believed at that point that that would happen to me, and I think that that's a really strong message in and of itself is that 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 it wasn't the case at all. But I believe that for I mean, and everyone has to make their own choices. For mm-hmm. me, it was. Um, my my husband was extremely extremely busy and and everything kind of fell on me as it does with many women that's right uh, we're seeing that with covid and mm-hmm. and it affecting female careers but the story she was referring to i think was one day you know my oldest was in second grade and he you know had his shoulders all slumped when i picked him up and it turned out that everyone was supposed to wear green that day and you know he's of course in red and <laughs> and i didn't know it cuz i didn't go through the backpack and then i had just tremendous guilt about you know am i doing this right and you know, there is no right or wrong. And certainly it's not right. the end of the world that he wasn't wearing green, but <laughs> it was kind of a wake up call. Um, my other wake up call was I came home and my daughter, who was about five, I asked her to help me, you know, bring the dishes over to the sink or something. And she looked at me and she said, you know, can't you see what a long day I've had and how tired I am? <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, you know, so she, so had, she out of the mouths of babes. Somewhere. Yeah. She, yeah, she had exactly. heard that before. Yeah. That is funny. So it's hard. It's very hard. And, you know, if you have the flexibility to make it work, you, you know, I, I, I hate to say you will not be sidelined later because you might, but I really believe that you have a good chance of not being sidelined at all and make, you know, you've got mm-hmm. to make the right choices for you mm-hmm. and your family. Yeah. It doesn't sound like you regret it at all, that that it was a choice not you made. All. And uh, if you look at your CV, I mean, 17 pages long, it's the, it doesn't look like you had any part-time <laughs> work in there at all. I have a feeling you were working maybe a little more than part-time <laughs> back well, then. Well, I, I made up for it later, I think. Oh, sounds like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I would I would like to ask you the question at this stage of your career uh, what are what are the biggest lessons you've learned what do you wish you could tell your 25 year old self 
that you know now? Why, you know, I mean, I, I really wish I had been exposed to research sooner. You know, mm-hmm. research to me sounded um, like test tubes and, you know, Bunsen burners. And, and <laughs> I really didn't have a sense of clinical research. I wish I had had more mentors in that space early on. Um, because I love clinical research. And uh, I think that um, it's hard as a 25-year-old to even know who to turn to with regard to advice. But I would say um, most young people don't seek out as much uh, as much wisdom in terms of uh, advice as they could. For instance, I mentor a young woman who I set her up with, you know, the dean of the medical school and the head of the cancer center and the head of, you know, different people to talk to. And she said, they're not going to want to talk to me. You know? <laughs> and I said, you're the future of this place. You know, you're bright, you're energetic. They, they'll be more than willing to spend mm-hmm. some time talking to you about your interests and your future. And I think that was a real eye-opener for her. And I, I would say to anyone, the more people you can find to talk to and just say, hey, will you talk to me for 15 minutes? Mm-hmm. And, and what advice might you give me for direction? I, I think that that can go a long way and uh, and people would never think to do that. Yeah, that's one of the things we talked about, that you recommend to women that they find a more seasoned, older mentor, male or female, uh, and you had one that helped you avoid some political landmines in your, in your career, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I had, uh, I had this one... Um, And I'll share one thing she said to me once, you know, I said, what am I going to do in this, in this meeting? You know, I was feeling really intimidated and, and she said, you're just going to grow a big pair and drag him across (laughs) the floor, (laughs) you know, and, and she just, she just says, you walk in there and you just, you know, take control of the situation basically. So you know, you, you can learn a lot from others. And she was hilarious. You know, she, um, I don't, I'm not as in touch with her anymore as her career has advanced. Um, but, um, you know, the other person who I turn to as a mentor is, is not chairman of the department, but chairwoman of the department, you know, chairwoman and institute chair. And we have to redefine the space. Yes. Yes, indeed. Um, yeah, that may be the title, Grow a Pair and Drag Them Along the Floor. <laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> I love yeah. it. Just, I love it. it. It's true. Just, just assume. Hilar- it's yeah. true, isn't it? I thought it was a perfect, yeah. perfect analogy. Act like you own the place, go in there, pretend you're like confident, even though you're not. <laughs> uh, I've done it. I'm sure you've done it. And it uh, gets us by sometimes. We don't, uh, not feeling super confident. Um, you know, I came on to the medical wards, you know, right as Anita Hill was, uh, uh, you know, uh, coming forth with her case. And, and, and that, that just happened to be very fortunate for me. There was a lot of a sudden 
awareness and respect around uh, the treatment of women in the workplace. And, um, you know, some listeners may not remember Anita Hill, uh, mm-hmm. but uh, for those who do, there was a real shift, a oh, yeah. real shift in the workplace. Um, in hospitals, there was certainly, and I'm mm-hmm. sure in other areas. Yeah, definitely. So even even today, after all these years, and that was, I think, the early 90s, right? Right. Um, 91. Yeah I, when, yeah, I still look at Clarence Thomas, and I when I see the Supreme Court photo, and I think, Oh, I cannot believe he's there. I cannot believe he got away with that. I, yeah. and, and when the decision came out, it's like, wait a minute, he he's going to be on the Supreme. He got away with it, you know. He didn't get away with it though. It changed the world. It did. I really believe yeah. it changed the world. You yeah. know, I mean, no longer, well, you know, could that behavior be uh, acceptable or tolerated? I, I really think it changed changed things. It has, but it hasn't. Even though he stayed. Yeah. I like to be optimistic that it has changed a great deal, and I think it has. Um, but, you know, I, I see uh, Governor Cuomo still in that seat, and I think, wait a minute, didn't he resign? And, and so I, if it was a woman, she'd be gone. Okay, she she'd be out of there. You know, you've misbehaved. You're out. He's like, well, I'm going to hang around for a little while and wrap some things up. He's still talking about like the hurricane coming through, and it's like, what is going on? <laughs> yeah. uh, so it's uh, we uh, have to speak up, right? We do, and you know, the Cleveland Clinic has has really uh, moved forward. I mean, they they for a long time were very traditionally male. We now have a female chief of staff, Dr. Barry Ridgway, who's just wonderful. Many uh, uh, hospital presidents, uh, Rebecca Stark, Margaret McKenzie are presidents of local hospitals in our region. Mm -hmm. And uh, women, you know, I, I think that while, you know, while sometimes they talk about women, you know, about encouraging women for these positions, these are people who should have had those positions anyway. You know, it wasn't as as though this was in their favor. But the Cleveland Clinic is definitely moving forward, and I hope other places are too. They are. I've interviewed uh, Debbie Hayes, who chairs Christ Hospital. I've interviewed Mary Buzalis, who uh, who heads uh, Premier Health in Dayton. Uh, and these women remind me um, they have history in nursing. But they remind me of mm-hmm. you, the passion, the leadership, the the taking initiative on getting things done. And uh, it's really cool to see because it, it not so long ago, it was a very male-dominated field. I work with a female scientist at, at Myriad with some of the genetics that I do and, and uh, Alicia Hughes. And she's, you know... It, it, She's the one who's the first author of these papers. She's the one directing a lot of the ideas around these projects. Mm-hmm. And it, it's really fun to be a part of. Mm-hmm. Well, Holly, I know you're very busy. I know you need to move on to your next meeting. And I appreciate you taking the time today. Very impressive career. And I can't wait uh, until this airs. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk to you and hope to talk to you again. Okay. Thanks again. Okay. Take bye-bye. care. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to this episode of Leading She. 
Please check out many other Leading She episodes, which are wonderful. We discuss challenges these accomplished women have overcome in their careers. Please subscribe to this podcast and rate it and review it. Follow Leading She on Instagram, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And visit our website, leadingshe.com, where we have ideas and wisdom for women leaders.